0: Opening up episode 275 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear with the song Shark Bait is from the band The Amphibians. They are a Cincinnati surf band. This is from their album, The Surf Guitar Heard Round the World. You can find them on Facebook or just follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. Coincidentally, that's the website for Monster Kid Radio. The podcast you're listening to Right now. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show this week. Welcome to an episode that I am calling in its subtitle Julie in July because we're gonna talk about a Julie Adams movie. Now, longtime listeners to the show or people who've been around me for maybe five minutes know that the creature from a black lagoon is my favorite film of all time. No. No.
1: Ah!
2: sheer stark terror grips you in underwater 3d in creature from the black lagoon the most terrifying monster of the ages rises from the sea raging with pent-up passion making every man his mortal enemy every woman's beauty his prey creature from the black lagoon In 3D, starring Richard Carlson and Julie Adams. Every
0: horrifying scene leaps out of the screen right at you. A universal re-release rated G. And a big part of that is because of Julie Adams. She's amazing, and yeah, I've got a little bit of a crush on her. But she did more than just Creature from the Black Lagoon. She did a number of westerns, a lot of television, and a movie in 1962 called The Underwater City. Now this is not a monster movie per se, although there is a giant octopus and some other things and there's some shark action that happens off screen, which is why Shark Bait's what opened the episode this week. You're going to hear about this movie from me and my friend Stephen D. Sullivan. He's coming here to talk about this movie because he's a big fan of Julie Adams as well. And you know what? I'm eager to get to it, so we'll just get to that right after I spin a couple of trailers and do some other business.
3: the door to the shuttered room.
2: I wouldn't take her into that old house, mister. Less than you want her to end up like this.
3: The terror begins on the road to the house with the shuttered room.
1: There's
2: no hope for Susanna. If she's even one night in that house. Why well, um detect a threat there somewhere? Did you feel it? Feel what? When you opened that door, it was like I was standing in front of a refrigerator.
3: The terror is a touch. A sound. A sense of someone watching. That stains two people with the secret of what lies in the shuttered room and beyond.
1: Please, let me go. I have to see my husband.
3: Well, what's wrong with staying right here and passing the time of day with me? Ah.
0: Hey, Chief.
2: That sure is a lovely wife you got there.
0: And you know, I hear tell, she's just as pretty all
2: over. You wouldn't have to know what your wife's doing right now, would you?
1: Hey,
2: maybe Ethan knows what this guy's wife's doing.
0: Maybe this guy's wife
2: knows what Ethan is doing. Because maybe they're doing the same thing together.
0: Wait,
1: Wait, let me help you.
3: sleep one night in the house with the shuttered room, Ah! and you may never want to sleep
0: again. Are you a geek looking for love? Do you long to find discussion on that special comic, TV episode, movie, or toy that's just right for you? Then why not try Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Chris and Cindy Franklin can match you with that certain something to satisfy your genre-related longings, no matter the subject. Superheroes. But Robin's like, that was really nice of you, Batman. He's like, I
3: had the room loaded with kryptonite. I can turn it on at any moment. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and here's the thing. It's, you're talking about, now think about this. It's an apartment building owned by Batman. Do you not think that Batman doesn't have their place but?
4: Sci-fi. I don't know.
1: You talk about being a sex symbol and stuff like that. I mean, I know a lot of girls thought, you know, William Shatner was it. But I had the biggest crush on George Takai. I I, I, I did. I thought, you know.
0: Sorry about that. (laughs) Horror. And then when we see the wolfman for the first time, he's in... I don't know, we don't know. A long
1: sleeve shirt, shirt. And a dark pair of
0: pants. pants with a belt. With a, with belt. a belt, that's what <laughs> And his
1: shirt's buttoned up all the way,
3: too.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And his so, arms. So after he changes into this ferocious beast who
3: can't talk and doesn't seem to be able to think beyond just attacking things.
1: He, he has lots of dexter- dexterity.
3: He went through his closet and... I don't know. like this outfit, Action figures.
1: I actually had all the figures and all the accessories up to a certain point. I really, literally did collect them all,
0: you know.
1: Including Shira. I
0: was going to get to that, but, but... Chris and Cindy have found their own happiness through discussions like this.
1: I could be friends with him. I could be down with this version of the ultra-humanoid.
0: You can be friends with the dude who put his brain inside a mutated albino-8. I
1: married you!
0: (laughs) If you're tired of searching for geek love, then sign up with Supermates for free at supermatescomic.blogspot.com or on iTunes.
2: And yet you propose to follow this tenth failure with another attempt, using more of your volunteers... The future come to life today. The fantastic story of Project Sigma, Earth's first manned satellite for the invasion of outer space. Monstrous space rockets propelled at the speed of light through the solar system and the galaxies, joining in the cosmos to travel to worlds beyond. War of the satellites. From unseen, unknown planets comes a warning of horror that the United Nations cannot ignore. We are obviously in the grip of a force stronger than we can oppose. The invasion of Earth by a race of supermen from outer space, possessing the weird power of duplicating themselves indefinitely. Creatures taking on human form, yet impervious to any destructive force known to man. Look out! Terrors of space travel, the first death and burial in the cosmic void, millions of miles away. An insidious enemy on board, trying to stop man from reaching beyond the limits of our own solar system. Sigma barrier dead ahead. Crash emergency. All hands secure for Blast.
0: Listeners, I'm going to be honest with you, really the only reason I wanted to talk about this movie is because I love the idea of Julie Adams in a skin-tight scuba suit. Really, that's it. <laughs> but, you know, let's, let's be honest and straight up front here. Um, my name is Derek, and I have a Julie problem. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Who doesn't, though? I mean, she's such a, a wonderful woman. She's so, you know, she's still active, for those of you that don't know. She's still out doing appearances and talking about her time in the movies, and she's got a biography out, too. That's, that's pretty darn wonderful. And, and Derek and I both met her, and she's just wonderful.
0: She is a sweetheart, and I don't know about you, Steve, but the last time I saw her, her son introduced me again. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember we met Derek at Monster Bash, and she reached over, caressed my arm, looked me in the eyes, and smiled, and said, oh, then we're really old friends, aren't we? It's <laughs> like, oh, I don't yeah, have so to move at all. to meet her twice,
4: and I've only <laughs> got to meet her that once at the, a showing of the Creature Mm-hmm. down in Chicago, in 3D, Anaclyph. So someday I'll see it in 3D with the polarized glasses the way it was intended. But right. sadly, that has not happened yet.
0: You know, you mentioned the biography. Do you have the audiobook version of it or just the book book?
4: I do not. I just have the book book version of it. Okay. I mean, they're both Side. good.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, the Dead Tree <laughs> edition is great. Yeah, I did pick up the audiobook version of it, and she reads it. Oh, now, wow. Of course, as a podcaster and somebody who's been working on audio for years, I can hear the start and the stops. And it's like, man, they should have faded in right here or there. But you know what? You've got like eight hours of Julie Adams reading to you about her life story.
4: Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's yeah, awesome.
0: It's, it's pretty awesome. You know what? This is an episode of Monster Kid Radio. This is our guest, Stephen D. Sullivan. How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs>
4: I'm doing really well this morning. Doing really well. It's kind of a, a beautiful summer day. It's going to get a little hot, but here we are.
0: Staying dry. Uh, staying dry,
4: you know, I haven't begun sweating yet, and we are not living at the bottom of the sea in an undersea habitat either, so.
0: So we are not recording from Amphibia City.
4: We are not.
0: <laughs> we are
4: not. City, Wouldn't it be fun if we could, though?
0: Oh, it'd be great. If it was stabilized, if they got that whole problem worked out.
4: <laughs> I was thinking last night as I was watching the movie again, isn't there some resort where they let you stay in a dome under the sea is one of your options. I mean, it's not really under deep under the sea, right. but it's like a domed room in a lagoon with the water above you, kind of the way they do with some of those shark walks and stuff. At, at, uh, I'm going to say SeaWorld, but I've never been to SeaWorld, so I'm not sure where where it really is. So is it, aren't, isn't there a resort like that? Atlantis, maybe? I think there might be.
0: There may be. I, I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, I know, the like the walks where you walk through the glass tube and you see the fish swimming around and then you start thinking about what happened in Jaws 3D and you don't want to be in there, and then, <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and you hope uh, hope Bess is there in her. I don't remember her last name. She's one of the stars. Bess is there in her scuba suit to rescue you. Yes, so.
0: yes. Yeah, Jaws 3D was the first Jaws film I saw. <laughs> was it really? In the theater. I am so sorry. (laughs) I saw it as a double feature with Octopussy, the James Bond movie.
4: (laughs) Wow. I am doubly so sorry. (laughs) uh, Octopussy is one of my least favorite James Bond pictures.
0: You know what? It's my first Bond, so of course I've got some fond feelings toward it. But yeah, I know full well (laughs) of the James (laughs) Bond canon.
4: You know, I mean, there are some people who like Jaws. Two, though, isn't Jaws 2 an Anlon Smithy production, which is the name that directors put on things that they don't want to use their real name? Uh, I actually maybe like Jaws 3 better than Jaws 2 or Jaws 4.
0: I actually kind of like Jaws 2. not Schwartz is the director. I may be mispronouncing that. Okay. Right. Um, but I kind of like Jaws 2. I think it's a little underrated if you give it enough time after you've watched the first Jaws to watch it. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Yeah, and that may be true. I think my my problem with Jaws 1, which I was just right in the wheelhouse to love that film when it came out right at the right age. Friends and I probably saw it more than a a dozen times the summer that it came out. That turned me even more into a, a shark expert. And despite one or two things, the shark in the original Jaws acts more or less like a shark behaves. More or less. But Jaws two, no, the shark is just a, a pop up wind up toy that just show up and do crazy random things whenever the screenplay calls for it. So yeah, so I had that kind of a problem with it. And, uh, and Jaws three at least had, had had some kind of sciencey things in it, but you know, kind of terrible three D effects. And,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and Louis Gossett Jr.
4: And I can't even remember the female star, who I think is kind of cute. I can't even remember her last name. i think, pretty sure her first name is Bess. And if we were really fast on the IMDb, we could look it up and find out. Anyway, underwater movies, movies with people underwater, with tubes collapsing and and flooding and all that kind of stuff. And and, uh, the underwater city is one of those.
0: Bess Armstrong is the name you're looking for
4: you like that transition i thought yeah, was,
0: yeah. You know. sorry yeah i'm was, I was still trying to look up yeah best was kind of good yeah best okay yeah yes underwater city Segway. let's let's acknowledge the segue <laughs> so underwater city
2: that's amphibious city Space may be more glamorous at the moment but in terms of destiny of mankind the future inner space the undersea world is
3: infinitely more important than outer space can ever be
2: for the aquanauts and their women an amazing underwater world of comfort and convenience but also a world of pitfalls where every step may be their last (laughs) and nature threatened by these invaders from above, strikes back with awesome power.
0: This was the first time viewing for you.
4: Yeah, well, I've actually watched it twice now. Right, but right,
0: I, but for the show.
4: I received it as a Father's Day present, which is uh, is pretty cool because my wife is just that cool. <laughs> That was just a, a week ago, so excellent. Which tells you kind of exactly when we're recording this in 2016. And
0: we'll probably gripe a little bit about why it's taken Steve so long to see it, and it's nothing about Steve. It just has to do with the availability of this movie. And we'll, we'll get well. You know, let's talk about that right now. It's not available as a DVD. No, officially you have to basically stream it. I'm not it from even Amazon. sure
4: it's available as a VHS. Is it? I
0: don't know. And it seems where it seems like that this movie has had a weird history going back to when it was released to the theaters yeah i don't know why they didn't push it harder i'm not sure what happened there
4: you know as near as we could tell it's shot in tv aspect ratio rather than any kind of widescreen ratio Mm -hmm. i mean i didn't get the sense that it was panned and scanned No, i didn't either
0: it It was shot in color but when it was shown theatrically a lot of the prints were struck in black and white right and and nobody can explain to the producer why or (laughs) what had happened yeah
4: right so it's 1962 Uh uh-huh which is a full decade, pretty much, after widescreen became the standard format mm-hmm. for motion pictures in the theater, and around the same time, the use of black and white in the theater really fell off, especially for A productions. But you know, by the early nineteen sixties, almost everything in the theater was color. So this was shot in color in the old format, the smaller the four three format, but then released to the the theaters. In black and white?
0: Which is weird.
4: Yeah, it's just weird. It doesn't, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, I mean, we're getting this information from the Internet. So there's always the chance that there's some kind of dodgy Internet information in there. But it doesn't sound completely crazy as something that would happen. But at the same time, it does sound completely crazy because just why would you do that? Were black and white prints just that much cheaper? And maybe they were. Did they think that it looked more convincing in black and white? Maybe it did. Because one of the things that, that I'm sure we'll talk about a little more is that all the underwater sequences were shot dry for wet. Dry for wet,
0: a lot of models. And, you know, right. I, I don't have a problem with model work. I mean, it's, it is what it no, is. No,
4: I love model work. Actually, I think the model work is, is quite good in a lot of places. And I think some of the
0: dry for wets not awful, until they dwell on somebody for way too long, and those little bubbles that are coming up start floating back down. Right. Then you're like, wait a minute.
4: (laughs) (laughs) You know, the first time I watched it a week ago, I looked at it, the first scene that they have, where they're coming out of the underwater submarine-like device that they call the manta ray. When they're coming out, I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, this is dry for wet. Oh, that's kind of disappointing. But then, as as I kept watching... I was noticing that there were bubbles coming out of all their scuba tanks. I'm a big fan of Jacques Cousteau when he was live. I even had a a tribute to him in his uh, memorial magazine. But I'm, I'm watching it, and I'm thinking, there are not nearly enough bubbles coming out of these tanks. But at the same time... I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that they were omnipresent. They were in all the scenes where they're underwater. There are these bubbles coming out of their tanks, and they're not really going with their breathing the way they should or any of that kind of stuff that you're familiar with from watching actual footage from underwater. But at the same time, there they are, and I'm thinking, I cannot believe that in this low-budget movie, they spent the time to optically print in all of those bubbles. That would be a crazy extra expense. And it really puzzled me for a while, and I ran onto a, a review page for the Underwater City Online, and they seemed to imply that, yes, indeed, that was how the bubbles were done. They were all added in post. And I thought, boy, they must have some clever way of doing it, because it didn't show any of the signs of bubbles added in post it didn't look animated it didn't have you know the little halos that you get around when you're optically printing one thing onto another or any of that kind of stuff so i was really puzzled there were a couple of scenes where part of me thought did they shoot this underwater is that possible but why would they shoot one scene underwater and not the rest of it that that seems crazy and wasteful too and i couldn't couldn't really figure it out until last night when I was rewatching the movie. I suddenly had this brainstorm, which I'm sure a cure occurred to you immediately. And I thought, I wonder if Julie Adams has anything to say about this movie
1: <laughs> <laughs> in her biography.
4: You know, when I got the bio, this movie didn't mean anything to me. So it, it, you know, any information relating to it wouldn't stick in my head. So I went back and I, I. Looked it up in the book, and sure enough, it took a little bit of digging to find the references. But I did find them, and Julie Adams completely explained the bubbles. And it's kind of brilliant. The special effects in this were done by one of the Leidecker brothers, who were the special effects masterminds for a lot of Republic serials. And these guys were special effects geniuses. If you haven't seen their work on Republic... All the Republic serials, including Captain Marvel and, and all, all of the best ones, basically. They, they were geniuses with miniatures and with clever ways to do things that didn't cost very much. And apparently, according to Julie Adams, Howard Leidecker invented a bubble machine that would take the place of the part of the breathing apparatus on the, the scuba tanks. And his bubble machine filled the bubbles with helium. So that rather than sink the way air-filled bubbles would do, the bubbles would rise the way they would if they were really underwater. And apparently, you know, they had enough budget to outfit uh, a few of these suits with this thing. And that's how it works. So as Derek pointed out, though, occasionally the air-helium mix wouldn't be quite right. (laughs) And you'll see the bubbles kind of start drifting back down into the scene. I didn't notice that at all. When I watched the film the first time, but it was pretty obvious. The a second couple time. of
0: times, and I believe there's one shot. And man, we're told <laughs> listeners, I'm sorry if I'm ruining a shot or a secret behind the scenes, but there's one where a couple of the bubbles come out and then they stick together the way, but like so, bubbles do. Mm-hmm. It's like air bubbles don't. No, that's not. <laughs> but you know what? <laughs> well, they they, they do, air- do in a way. Yeah, but, but not. It's- yeah. The, the thing is, though, is they, they do strive to maintain this illusion. I think the bubbles help, and the way they did the lighting, the way they kind of break up the lighting coming from the top, streaking down a little bit, I, right, I thought that yeah, was yeah. a nice touch. And it does give Truly it... Julie Adams, mm-hmm.
4: they had some kind of a water glass that they mm-hmm. were shooting through or, and and some water tanks that were helping to add to the the effect and stuff. And it's uh, it was really, really terrific to find the information about this film, more information than you probably could find anywhere else. Honestly, more firsthand information in her book, along with uh, a number of, publicity stills and stuff
0: which is actually how i first found out about this movie was reading her book yeah, and, there you and go. so that i went immediately trying to find it got frustrated because i couldn't find it on dvd or home media at all had just right. had to, to rent it or buy it through amazon streaming so that's how i have it is through the streaming copy you know right and that's
4: how i have it too and i'm yeah as you may know from our past talks many of our past talks i'm a, a big physical media fan I like to have something that I can hold in my hand that can't be suddenly taken away from me when Netflix no longer has that contract or whatever. So often, if I like a film, if even if I see it on streaming, I'll go out and I'll buy the DVD or I'll buy the Blu-ray or you know whatever needs to be buy'd, uh, buy'd, Yeah, <laughs> it's early. <laughs> whatever needs to be bought yeah. in order to actually stick it in my library physically. And this is only only available near as either of us could figure out via streaming and through Amazon. Right,
0: it does turn up on a couple of bootleg sites, and a couple of years ago, a network or TV channel called Get TV aired it a few mm-hmm. times, from what I understand. But the producer, oh yeah, we have Get yeah, TV. I it, noticed. That. I'm looking a few places, and that's what I'm seeing here. I do see that uh, Alex Gordon, to go back to him, he really tried to get this out, you know, during his lifetime, but just. The studio or the people who own the film just didn't play and, and didn't let it happen for yeah, whatever reason, which this could turn into another one of Steve and I's conversations about copyright and who should own what. But that's not what you tuned into Monster Kid Radio. Right. Steve <laughs> and I do that funny <laughs> enough off mic and through hey, Facebook. Hey, welcome to
4: Copyright Kid Radio. <laughs> copyright
0: Kid Radio. Man, I'm anyway, such a copyright it nerd. Is Come on. <laughs> wonderful.
4: It's available. It's wonderful that the print that's available, it's not an H D print, no, but it's a very it's good It's not a
0: print. bad transfer, you know, for what it is for a movie from the nineteen yeah. sixties. It's not bad. And you know, we're talking It's
4: about- a much better transfer than one of our other favorites right. which isn't really regularly available, Destination Inner Space, which you can also stream on Amazon. That one's free because the public domain Issues on it are are kind of dodgy, I guess, so they don't want to be (laughs) charging for it. if you have
0: Amazon Prime, you can stream that one uh, freely.
4: But the print on this is much, much better than that. Yeah, you know, it's not bad. It's quite good. It's comparable to what you'd get on on a standard cable Mm -hmm. channel. It's clean. It's not muddy at all. The colors are good. It doesn't have the detail that an HD print would. But sometimes that's okay if that's what you have to put up with it doesn't have any of the kind of third generation grain or pixelation that destination interspace does and that's that's all good that's all good
0: and it sounds pretty decent too yeah
4: i wish i could have it on a physical media sure. with some kind of you know i mean julie adams is still alive and wouldn't it be wonderful to have her commentary on this or other people that may still be with us while they can do that
0: that's true and the thing about julie adams in this film is you can really hear her accent in this, yes. which she does kind of bury a little bit in some of the other movies that we know and love her in. But in this yeah. one, her her accent's there, and it just, to me, makes her even more adorable. But that's just me.
4: <laughs> it does. Unfortunately, this is also the um, – I don't know who the hairstylist was on this, this film. Oh, boy. boy. <laughs> they are some of the most – there's two major female characters, and their hair is just terrible. It's just, <laughs> it is the worst kind of leftover 1950s leave it to Beaver hair on top of your head kind of hairstyles without actually going to beehive. It's it's a shame considering that uh, he, we know that Julie Adams has really lovely hair, and the the other the other one them probably did too. But it doesn't it doesn't look good, and it's also not. And this is one of my you know Derek and I like this film but it's not a genius film it is not an undiscovered gem by any means no one looks like they're appropriately dressed for living underwater <laughs> no not in the least not at all and least. so the hair is not a result of trying to give them some kind of hairstyle that wouldn't get caught up in a suit underwater it's just not attractive hairstyling, in my opinion.
0: I mean, it's it's the '60s. It's a low budget monster, or not even a monster movie. It's a low budget movie, and yeah, I mean, it is what it is.
4: It's the '60s, but it's it's early enough in the '60s that it right. is pre, uh, you know, free love, long hair, go natural '60s. So it's it's kind of caught in that uncomfortable era between the '50s when. Hair was kind of a big thing, and later 60s, where natural was kind of a big thing. And it's kind of, it, you know, the women look like they've just got perms and they're living underwater. It, it, it's just not working. It, for it me. doesn't make sense. And, and the guys are all walking around in suits. Now, I, I imagine since it's a similar time frame and it both involves living underwater, that for me, there are a lot of comparisons with Destination Space. Now, this is. The Underwater City is more of a straight science fiction, no actual monsters movie, whereas Destination Interspace is a monster movie. But when I watch Destination Interspace and I see them under the sea and, and their undersea habitat, I n- never at any point in that film do I think these guys are dressed inappropriately for living under the sea. Whereas in The Underwater City, that every time a scene would start, I would think, Well, that's not really appropriate for undersea. That's not really appropriate for undersea in terms of both the clothing and actually a lot of the kind of furnishings and stuff that they have undersea. It's just like they took everything that was landside and just brought it underwater. So all the guys are walking around in their three-piece suits with their ties and all this kind of stuff, as opposed to... Walking around in stuff that you know would be kind of wash and wear and it wouldn 't much matter if there was a seawater contamination and that kind of stuff, so it 's weird that way i mean yes it 's low budget, so that would have, it would have cost more money to actually outfit them in in futuristic undersea uniforms i guess but i don't know what did you think about that there's a marked
0: difference between this and destination interspace and the way they dress but isn't in destination interspace isn't that a military operation
4: i think it's a civilian station with military the military guy actually comes into right. the
0: situation where this one is primarily a civilian operation so i mean i could see some some differences there but i think you're right i think walking around in these three-piece suits while you're doing all this it just doesn't it's seem to of
4: practicality sense. too you know I mean, if you watch – the classic Jacques Cousteau documentaries are from just a little bit later than this time period in the the mid to late 60s. And if you watch those, and they're always going around underwater and, and going from the ship to the sea and then back and forth and stuff. And sometimes they're in subs that that they don't have to get wet in. But they're always dressed – kind of the way sailors dress, which is a very practical kind of T-shirts and slacks or shorts or something that allows us to move around to get, if we get wet, we dry off quickly and that kind of stuff. And just none of that in this. And I think there is a little bit more utilitarian dress in Destination Inner Space, which had a, a little bit, despite some cheesy special effects, seemed to have kind of a more of a production design sense of what, living underwater might be like exactly
0: now i do understand when they're showing off the place or bring the visitors down towards again you know wanting to dress up and spiff up but through the rest of the, the bulk of the film there's no reason for them to be walking around in their suits it just doesn't right just doesn't make a lot of sense and there's a lot of things in this movie though that i do let go of when i watch it probably oh, yeah. because it's a julie adams film and, and she can do right. no wrong but
4: and it's a fairly serious attempt yeah. at science fiction for the time now it's not what I would call great science fiction, and that clearly the authors of it didn't think really far ahead. In fact, it, it kind of plays out like a cross between The Shape of Things to Come and uh, George Powell's Destination Moon, a little bit of Destination Inner Space, which didn't come along until four years later in 1966. But it's it's kind of like a weird cross between standard science fiction movies, but with an underwater city instead of the city of the future that you would get in shape of things to come or this kind of serious space exploration of destination moon it's, it's they're trying but it's it's pretty clear to me that they didn't do a lot of research
0: <laughs> I agree it's like they had a wouldn't it be cool if we could put a city underwater and then that's where they went they, they didn't right. really do more didn't. research than they probably could or should have
4: they didn't research what that might be like. Right. They didn't, you know, they didn't watch a lot of uh, a lot of scuba diving films or or other underwater stuff. They didn't even. It didn't even seem to me, despite the fact that they had navy people appearing in this film, it didn't really even seem to me that they spent a lot of time talking to navy men or other people that spend a reasonable amount of time in the water or on ships it doesn't have a flavor of any of that it, it has the flavor more of a an outer space thing where it's you know all high and dry and and uh, we've just ported the landward uh, communities out into outer space which is something you kind of get in a lot of outer space movies from this time too not the george Powell movies that are better but it's hard in the way of talking about this because we like this film and sure You hear us talking about, well, it kind of came short on this, and it's got the bubble machines and all that. You might get the impression we don't like the film, but we do like the film. It just – it didn't aim as high as it could, and it wasn't as well thought through as it could have been. But on the other hand, it's, it's got some cool stuff. It's know? one
0: of those films where the uh, execution doesn't quite live up to its intention, but its intention wasn't as high as it could have been to begin with. Th- right. That said, yep, and I know that sounds very negative, but Steve's right. I actually really enjoy this movie. Julie Adams being a part of it, but not the only thing. I mean, this has got some of the trappings of the monster movies of this era that I love. Ronald Stein does the music. Yeah. I love Ronald Stein as a composer. I love what he does, and I wish there was more of it available on CD. There's a lot, but I wish there was even more, because I love Ronald Stein.
4: Is this in any of your collections? Because it's not in any of No, I, I haven't
0: been able to track any of it down, and it's a shame. Ronald
4: Stein is one of those guys that I really didn't pay any attention to until the last year or two. And then suddenly, I think I must have seen some kind of collection. and I'm like, Wait a minute, this guy did the, the music on all these movies that I like? Why had I never noticed that before? And so I went out and I I got to, you know I got dinosaurs and I got Not of This Earth and I got the the Haunted Palace uh, and the other things that are on those discs as mm-hmm. well and maybe one or two others and and suddenly he's on my radar and it's like this guy is not Bernard Herman
0: he's not even Hermanstein
4: <laughs> or, or, right but <laughs> but he did a lot yes. of really cool musical work in. A lot of low-budget sci-fi and horror films.
0: If you're a monster kid, if you love these classic monster movies, you've heard his work. Premature Burial, Journey to the Seventh Planet, Dinosaurus, you mentioned. Uh, Dementia 13, which is a little outside the box yeah. for him. I love that score. That's really You know, really it's very good. good.
4: It's amazing how good his music is in these films, considering how low the budget was Mm -hmm. in so many of these films. And this is another one. When I first turned it on last week and watched it for the first time, when his name came up on this credits list, I practically cheered. I was like, all right! (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I know at least that the music in this is going to be more than serviceable, that it's going to be good. And it was. And it is. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: Because he was kind
4: of an an unsung, low-budget musical genius.
0: Did a lot of work for Corman, AIP, just great stuff. Now, the narration at the beginning, I cannot find who did the narration. I and mean, I didn't watch the end credits this time. Do you know, or were you able to find out?
4: IMDb does have a credit for the, the narrator. And when it first came on, I thought it sounded a little like Les Tremaine. But then as it went on, I was like, no, it's not quite as deep and rich as Les would. Uh, Les Tremaine did a lot of voiceover work in addition to being a fine actor. Mm-hmm. It's IMDb says it's Vince Williams. Who is a guy I'm not really familiar
0: with? Yeah, I don't know who that is.
4: Yeah, yeah. He he has some other things that he he was in as an actor. He did a lot of TV work as an actor.
0: Oh,
1: okay.
4: But he was in um, an actor in Marines Let's Go, The Lonely Profession, and Submarine Seahawk, among other things. Okay. So he has quite a an extensive list of uh, movie and TV credits, but it's all it's basically. Spans only the 1960s, a little bit into the 50s. Okay. So, but he does a serviceable job as the narrator. But I, I gotta tell you, the narration is one of the things that I have trouble with in this film.
0: It's obviously shorthand to kind of get us to where we want to get. Right. And it just. To me, it could have been handled a little differently. but it's a, you know, it, you know, it,
4: it gets you through the thing very quickly. Yeah. It's handled in almost – people have said that this film almost feels documentary in its style. And that's part of the reason because you've got a narrator that's kind of telling you what's going on on screen as the people are underwater. And you wouldn't hear them normally. Now, the weird thing, though, with that is – They make a big deal in the movie about how they have these underwater communication devices that operate, for whatever reason, on light. (laughs) So we're shining light that communicates our messages underwater. And anyone that knows anything about underwater and refraction and, and diffusion and that kind of stuff knows that probably light beams are the last way. You want to be communicating underwater, especially over any kind of distance. so in theory, they have this ability to communicate underwater and they have this emergency signal that they activate, but they never seem to actually use it and the The opening part of the film, I can see that there are some things with world setting that you want to have the narrator talking about you know definitely that's that 's a use of a narrator that you can get behind, but very quickly, I found myself saying couldn't they have had these characters talking to each other? Couldn't they have told us who's in these suits? Because the suits, despite what Derek said, and I'm sorry if anyone got their hopes up, Julie really isn't in a skin-tight skin yeah, suit. Yeah, I
0: know, I know. <laughs>
4: There's a lot of equipment and junk on these suits, so they're, they're somewhere between an actual scuba suit and the old iron helmet suits that they'd go down and dive with with a hose attached to the surface. They're not that bulky, but it's not the kind of skin diving suits that you get in. And again, I'm going to mention this because it's the same era, Destination Inner Space, where they're using actual scuba gear and moving around in the scuba gear. It's somewhere in between. And with all the technology that they supposedly have... It would have been so much more effective if they actually had used the characters to tell us the parts of the story where people are walking around outside of the ship. And sometimes they do a little bit. A lot of times the narrative is carried by the Ronald Stein music when they're out of the ship. But especially at the first part, there are several scenes where the narrator is going on and they're outside the ship, they're underwater, where it would have been so much better if the characters had been talking to each other and said, you know, hey, someone's in trouble, go over there and help him or whatever. I mean, you don't obviously want to do that whole as you know, Bob. As you know, Bob, we're just the thinking, yeah,
0: we're you don't want to do that. the as you you know, we want to have that info dump like that, but there is a there is a way to do it. And listeners, you're listening to a couple of writers talk about a movie. Right. So, of course, we're like, gee, wouldn't the storytelling have worked better this way or that way? But you know what, it, yeah, it does set it up like a documentary a little bit. And then, I don't remember it lasting beyond the very beginning of the film. It doesn't seem to go throughout the rest of it, does it? It just kind of sets it up and then lets us go.
1: It
4: pops up a couple of other times. Does it? I, I don't remember.
0: And see, maybe it's because it was so innocuous, it just fell into the background for me.
4: Right, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> it's not terrible, but at the same time, for instance, in the entire opening scene, which is underwater, and it has the, the manta ray craft, and they get out, and they do some exploring, and they're trying to... just research about the site where they're going to put the underwater city and it, it ends with a, a a giant moray eel attack all of that's going on but nowhere in any of that do we find out who any of the people in the suits are and it's hard to feel the stakes of something when you don't know who is in jeopardy and honestly there's no reason to think that anyone that's in the rest of the film is actually in those opening sequences. At least I certainly couldn't tell that any one of our stars or our supporting characters was there. Certainly, you know, it was early enough in the thing that Julie Adams is not there. But I, I don't know. And and obviously our engineer character who comes in in the, in the next scene, obviously he's not there either. Which would seem to indicate that the only people that could have been there that we know are maybe the guy that's the head of the project and that kind of stuff. But then we don't know, so we never get that kind of tied in sensation with them. And that, that actually happens a lot when there are characters underwater that we just don't care about. It's like, oh no, we've lost another guy to sharks. Well, who was he? Why why do we care? Right. You know, it's just a well, you have to expect casualties on this kind of construction project.
0: Really? <laughs> Sharks happen, man. How many people, happen. are you
4: losing during this survey? <laughs> and, and at the same time, there's that moment at the right at the beginning where the guy's being attacked by the moray eel. He's actually down a cliff face doing geological work. He's attacked by a moray eel, sends out the distress signal. All his buddies get to the top of the cliff that he's got a rope going down. Yes, it's it's underwater. He's got a rope going down, and they don't even tug on the rope to see if he's still attached to it.
0: That's because <laughs> the narrator told us he's dead.
4: He's dead. Why bother? He's like, oh, well, dead. They looked fruitlessly into the into yep. the abyss, knowing they couldn't save their friend.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> Let's make an effort here, guys.
0: Yeah. yeah. Writing issues. <laughs> it had writing issues. You know, Julie Adams doesn't turn up for a while. She's not the lead. No.
4: She's the female lead.
0: Yeah, she's the female lead. But our main guy... William Lundigan plays this architect who has dreams of putting a base in space, a base on the moon, which I find ironic because I know William Lundigan now from the TV series Men Into Space. You
2: are about to see man's first attempt to reach the moon. This story is not true. It hasn't happened yet. These are scenes from that story. It will happen when men such as these name the day. This is the story of that day of man's first moon landing.
4: You know, I've been watching that and it hadn't even occurred to me. That's, that him. That That's him. He's
0: the lead of that. And yes. I love that show. That's what? Is it Comet TV?
4: It's funny. It's funny. It, I hadn't connected the two because I only started watching Men into Space in the last couple of months on, on Comet TV. Mm-hmm. And it hadn't occurred to me that it was the same guy. But there were places. In this film where I thought, you know, this kind of feels like an underwater men into space. Yes,
0: it does. It does. (laughs) Even the way he kind of delivers some of the lines. Men into space listeners, I I love that show. And as soon as I discovered that Comet TV was airing it, I started watching it. It's a very realistic, for what it is, approach to... It's a very to,
4: serious 1950s science fiction. Yeah, putting
0: scene. men into space. The moon, Mars, I mean, all this stuff. And it's just, it's a fantastic show for what it is, and about $50,000 an, an episode. It's Every half an hour long. It's got
4: kind of a new mm-hmm. space-related problem that they have to solve. Very episodic. The problems are not crazy there's a monster in the ship kind of problems. The problems are often, you know, human related, how we're going to deal with one person dealing with another, or people's egos getting in the way of exploration and that kind of stuff, or a scientific problem that they have to solve, or people right. in, in jeopardy that, that because the science has failed them, the technology has failed them. I was really surprised that I kind of hadn't even heard of it before Comet started showing it again. And then it was like, is this any good? And the answer is yes. It's it's actually, it's very good. I think it only lasted one season. But since it was the 1950s, there's like 30 or 40 shows in that one. And
0: I could be mistaken here, but I believe this show's in the public domain.
4: It seems to be. I think it is. Because there's no official box set released anywhere.
0: Which means you can see it on YouTube. I know there's a bunch of episodes on YouTube, actually.
4: And you can see it on Comet TV. And mm-hmm. I'm assuming that they've paid whatever licensing there may be, they paid. And if not, you know, boy, if we could have a a, a channel that just showed cool old public domain science fiction <laughs> shows, that would be, oh, wait, didn't we have a channel like, oh, no, we don't anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it would be really cool. Comet TV is the closest we get. And they're actually showing stuff that I'm not seeing anywhere else on television now. You have to put up with the commercials, and sometimes the commercials are horrible. Horrible.
0: Although Comet TVs, when they do their own in-house commercials to promote the next movie coming out next month, I yeah, love those because they've those got a cool. great sense of humor.
4: <laughs> those are cool. It's just that in and around those, you'll get the, yeah. the "I've fallen and I can't get up" or "I'm having bladder control problems" things, which just like, oh, you know, that you're taking me entirely out of <laughs> a <to> space here <laughs> with this. <laughs> Have you been injured by falling debris from old asbestos? Call the law firm.
0: In my area, I'm getting the uh, the car insurance commercial with the, the the person standing in front of a Statue of Liberty talking about their car, and you know, right. only get paid half of it. And you named your card Brad. You loved Brad. It's Like really? Yeah. That's, that's not why I'm watching this. So
1: yeah.
4: So they <laughs> anyway. have a lot of not not so wonderful inappropriate commercials. Though also they do a lot of um. There's been a lot of upcoming movie things. They've been showing the new Magnificent Seven movie promo. <laughs> Oh, relentlessly. And actually it looks good to me. But you know, aside that makes from sense that, so. there's a lot of a lot of commercials that they play that just don't seem relevant to my life. As and well. I think
0: Comet T V streams online, so you can watch pretty much their live station off their website.
4: You should check it out. They're you yeah. know it's Saturday afternoon or almost afternoon here, and they will be playing episodes of the classic outer limits along mm-hmm. with Interest, an Interesting mix of movies today. Saturday's a great day for Comet TV, usually.
0: The only thing that would make Comet TV better is if they had a horror host. I think they need a horror hosted program. That's what they need.
4: For me, it'd be commercial free.
0: Well, yeah, and then go commercial free. But yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, William Lindigan, he's the lead of Men into Space. He's the lead of this. He's a guy who wants to put a, a, a space base on the moon. And when he gets called into the office, he thinks that's what he's going to get. That they got the contract. No, well. As you know, Bob, it's right. actually Bob, isn't it? Well, right. Bob, it's not the contract that you were hoping for, but it's a contract. They want to put a piece at the bottom of the ocean instead. Well, he thinks it's pretty ridiculous, but...
4: Yeah, he's totally unenthusiastic about it. he remains so throughout almost the entire movie, which is kind of like...
1: <laughs> it's. Mm-hmm.
4: I, I know that's kind of supposedly, I guess, his character arc. But at the same time, there are more than a few times in the movie where the people that are actually planning this thing or like, I don't know if we want to work with someone that doesn't really believe in it about his character. And I think that probably the second time I felt that way about working with a an architect and engineer, I think probably the second time I would be, let's get someone else. There has, to, there has to be someone else, maybe not as brilliant, but someone that will actually like what we're doing and support it too, aside from mashing on Julie Adams.
0: Sure. And it's not just, you know, he doesn't want to do it. In front of the people presenting the project, he's like, "Oh well, man, you're going to lose a lot of people building this thing. What a pipe dream!" You know, he's pretty flat out
4: ridiculous idea, guys. (laughs) He's trying
0: to—it's like he's trying to scuttle the project before he gets hired, and his boss has to pull him aside. It's like, "Hey, yeah, soft pedal on the whole doom and gloom, buddy. We want the job, okay?"
1: (laughs) Right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah.
4: And we haven't talked much about Julie's character. Julie plays Dr. Monica Powers, who's an actual MD and a psychologist, I guess. They're a little unclear about that because they do send people to her for, for physical checkups. But then she starts running, attaching them to polygraph and running psych tests. And, of course, because this is the 1960s, the early 60s, we have to get that scene where you're the doctor?
0: A woman? Yeah, I was going to say it's clear. <laughs> I'm here to see Dr. Powers. Is he available? I'm Dr. Powers. I'm oh, <clears throat> wow. <laughs>
4: And then, of course, the first thing he wants to do is talk about her bedside manner, yeah, and flirt with her because that's what one does with one's doctors, I guess.
0: Well, you know, young, pretty—I'd flirt with Julie Adams if she hooked me up to anything. But you know, um, I would. The, too, the,
4: I, I do have to point out that I—I I have female doctors. My main doctors are women.
0: Yeah, so me, me <laughs> and too. And I've man.
4: never been tempted to flirt with them.
0: But are they Julie Adams?
4: They are not Adams. So that I suppose that could make a difference.
0: I, I would have the same problem Bob has when they hook him up to the polygraph, and she says, "Relax, your re-, what is it? Uh, calm your reactions or whatever it is. You know, you calm down, basically."
1: And at the same time,
4: Julie Adams is like hovering at his shoulder, <laughs> saying, He's like, relax. I'm not
0: saying anything. He's just staring out. Don't <laughs> seem
4: to be relaxing here, Bob." So. <laughs> you know, there is some of that old style sexism in the film.
0: Well also there's some bla- I feel like there's some blatant though too when they meet the cook that they call the dietitian of course right. it's a woman who's making of the course meal. It's a- and there's the the honeymoon couple the <laughs> they try real hard to paint it with well maybe it's a little bit more progressive but come on.
4: Right. At least the uh, the doctor and the dietitian are treated with a-, a certain amount of respect, you know. Yeah. The guy that did the project, well you know the the doctor is his niece, so there's a little bit of nepotism there. But the woman that's the dietit- they call the dietitian who's really the cook is clearly part of the scientific group that's under on this thing, and it's not too bad. They're working on it.
0: They're yeah, they, we're, they, we're you know, getting there.
4: They haven't quite managed it and they, they're they certainly still playing into the old cliches.
0: You uh-huh. know? We're still and that, getting there now, but yeah.
4: <laughs> right. and, and again, this is another one of those places where they've got the people working on this critical project underwater where people are being killed by sharks and rays. So I'm not even sure how one was killed by a manta ray, which is one of the fates I am That was a pretty killed huge
0: a manta, manta ray, though. That was huge.
4: It was huge. Yeah, <laughs> manta rays, they they don't eat meat. <laughs> they don't True. Hurt they're most beautiful and gentle creatures in the sea
0: <laughs> yeah well there's the giant octopus right
4: but, and the giant moray eel. which unfortunately the uh, peta alert there is the octopus eel fight at one point and uh that, those are
0: the uh i mean some of these those are it's to kind of hard to watch those things the shark attack i want to talk about the shark attack they comment on right because they, Cause they get kind of glossed over this whole shark thing now Steve contacted me earlier this week and said, you know, they made a comic book out of this. And I said, no, really?
4: Yes.
0: I found it cheap. I have it in my hands.
4: Oh, man. I, you know, we did this so quickly. I was going to get it too, but I didn't have time.
0: Now, a lot of the dialogue is lifted straight from the film. But the shark attack scene is in the comic. Oh, cool. It's a scene where somebody is trying to uh, set off some explosives to do some demolition. It doesn't quite work out the way it's supposed to. It's like the wire came loose. So when he goes – somebody goes in to try to fix it and, of course, the explosive goes off when he's next to it. Ah. And, and you get a pretty gruesome shot of this dead body floating in the water with, with blood all over the place. And awesome. They it, freak it, it's out. It's worth
4: noting that the yeah. comic book, it was a, a Dell movie adaptation mm-hmm. from the, the same era. And the art is by, I think, Reed Crandall.
0: I don't think it's credited in here, but it's, uh, it's pretty cool.
4: Reed Crandall was one of the mainstays of EC Comics. He's a genius comic book illustrator. He's one of the greats. So just that alone would be enough to pick this thing up as I'm far as flipping I'm through concerned the comic right I, now
0: I'm trying to find that shot or that scene with the shark
4: since you've got it and can look at it I was going to talk about I tried to find pages from it online and I found like 3 or 4 pages that maybe were from it but they were on a German site
1: oh okay
4: <laughs> so it was like all the all the balloons have been replaced with German and that kind of stuff. Are there pictures, like, of Atlantis and from mythology in this book?
0: The back cover is an ad for something Atlantis.
4: Okay. But there aren't any kind of historical, we've come from here to here to here, and now we're underwater.
0: The first page does start with, Earth is unique, and we started here, and then we started doing this on the beach. Here's a girl in a bikini, and then we go to the manta ray. Okay. So, (laughs) that's about what it does. But no, the back cover does have a thing about Atlantis, and I have no idea why. It's a pretty cool little comic. The shark scene's in there. They're freaking out because there's blood in the water because of the explosion. Everybody get in the shark cage! Okay.
4: Were you able to grab that locally, Derek?
0: Yes, that's how I found it pretty cheap.
4: See, this is the advantage of living in a, a large city rather than in... See, the-, the advantage of
0: living in Portland. I mean, we- right. <laughs> <laughs> Not nearly as many comic book shops as coffee stores or, or strip clubs, but there's a lot. <laughs>
4: there were strip clubs in Portland?
0: Dude, Portland is called Strip City for a reason. Is I'm it really? Saying, See, I didn't you, know that. At, at all. one point, we had more strip clubs per <laughs> area <laughs> than everybody else in the country. I don't know if that's still true. I don't go. But, uh,
4: right. Yeah. No. Atlanta was the other the place yeah. that when I visited Atlanta, I was like, holy god, there are a lot of strip clubs here.
0: So, Man, we got vegan strip clubs up here in Portland. Come <laughs> on. I'm not kidding.
4: <laughs> it's Portland. So yeah, so cool. I'm glad you were able to get that. And the artist, the artist by Reed Crandall, with some other fairly famous guy in, inking him. Uh, I don't remember who off the top of my head. It's really interesting that you know for this. This movie, they didn't even show in color in the theater that it actually has a comic book adaptation.
0: Yeah, I mean, its first release was in Mexico. It didn't get released in the States for a few years after that. Here's this comic book, and I, I can't find a date on the comic itself. I'm sure it's online somewhere. I, I'm um, pretty sure it's
4: 1962. It's 63. Yeah. So it's right when the, the thing's coming out, I
0: think. The copyright on the front is 1961, but that's the copyright marker for the film. According right. to this, which it's weird because the film wasn't released until '62 in Mexico. So I don't know where, the, you know, what they were pulling from. Were they pulling from a script? Are they, who knows? It's cool, though. I'm glad I have it. You know, the, the insert, the front page, right say the uh, inside front cover, are some black and white stills from the film.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There's only five of them, but there's some captions, and basically it tells the entire story in five <laughs> pictures. <laughs> uh, and then you've got the comic itself. And then for some reason or other, there's this thing about Poseidon and Atlantis at the very end.
4: Uh, I thought there was. See, I'd seen the Poseidon and Atlantis thing. That's the thing that showed up online. I was like, boy, this is kind of weird. That wasn't in the movie. I wonder how that ties in.
0: Yeah, it has, it, yeah it's not really in there. Um, and of course, some of the faces match everybody. I mean, they're kind of there, but not quite. The likenesses are... You know, but it's still a good comic.
4: They may not have even had stills when they were creating the thing. They may have had you know, just a certain amount of them. And and if you've only got one shot of the one of the actors, you're not going to try to face match. The comic industry, they were cranking these things out so quickly. And, and Dell was one of the, the companies that was run by Western, which actually was just a couple of miles from where I currently live. And they were a huge comic company. And they were doing this kind of stuff all the time. And I'm sure that they just cranked it out as quickly as they could. They, I'm sure they had a script to work with. It probably wasn't the final script. Because as someone that's done movie adaptations, usually you end up with stuff in the whatever script you're working from that totally doesn't make it into the movie. So I'm sure that's what happened with the shark sequence. They probably got to the movie and they're like, how are we going to shoot this? Well, we can have a stock footage of a shark and then cut to the guy. And that, and eventually they thought, oh, that's not working. So let's leave right. it right. We'll just refer to it, which is too bad because that kind of stuff might have made the – given the movie a little more oomph yep. because it's very talky and it's it's got a lot of the as-you-know-Bob syndrome where people sit around and say, well, as you know, <laughs> when you're living underwater, we can get all the resources that we need locally. In, in another way, despite all its limitation, limitations – and the the innate sexism of the 60s and that kind of stuff. It's kind of a valiant effort in its way. And you just – like with a lot of low-budget movies, you wish they'd just put a little more effort into it. One more rewrite. One more rewrite by someone that really knew their business, that really knew something about the ocean and that kind of stuff. We haven't really talked about the the plot. At all, but the plot is to build this undersea city, and the problems that they encounter, most of which seem kind of self-inflicted to me. And then at the end, <laughs> sure. And then at the end, something they overlooked at the beginning comes back to so bite them in the ass. And the which
0: seems pretty um, well when he does. Yeah, I don't want to spoil it, but right when it's revealed what they missed and how they missed it is like really,
4: really that
0: when that's that what happened, happened.
4: You didn't then complete that. Task? You didn't
0: keep going. Yeah, so. So, and again,
4: that's kind of one of those, one more rewrite pass maybe uh, solved some of that problem. So,
0: Are you glad you got to watch it for this, though? Are you glad I made you watch it?
4: <laughs> oh, I am totally glad you made it to me to watch it. The funny thing is, when you first mentioned it to me, uh-huh. I had it confused with other films. Like, I think City Under the Sea or something like that. There's an Irwin Allen film, Yeah, not too many years later, where they built a, an undersea city and have a lot of cool stuff in it. It's a Cold War saga, so there's like an Element X that uh, is radioactive and a potentially huge power source, and it has to be stored, surrounded by gold. So they've moved all the gold from Fort Knox. Under the Sea, and if you don't think that's tempting to bad guys, then (laughs) you haven't been paying attention. Anyway, that's a pretty cool movie. And its I think it's one of those ones you can get on Warner's Archive Collections. I'm pretty sure that's where I got my copy.
0: I believe so.
4: And that's that's a pretty cool movie. It actually does have some underwater scenes. It's got some good people in it. Mm. But I hadn't watched it in a while. I thought, oh my god, Julie Adams is in that? Really? But of course, no. She's in the similarly titled... Underwater City. Not. Which
0: is not Captain Nemo in the Underwater City, which is the other one that pops up when you start doing a bunch of searches right. for this.
4: And honestly, I love Nemo in the Underwater City. Sure. And that, a much better film. No,
0: it's, it's a good film, too. I mean, I'm glad I watched this. You know, I'm, I'm on my Julie Adams kick, and I probably will be for, well, to the day I die, but... You know, anytime I can watch her in something and, and see her act and not just—I really think she is is stellar. She was a very good actress.
4: She's a fine actress, and I, you know, looking through her filmography, I was surprised by how many TV shows she was in that I've oh, seen. Oh Man,
0: yeah, and, lots of television. I get to bond with my mother over Julie Adams and Murder She Wrote because she loved Murder She Wrote. Yeah, my mom loves that too. You know, so when I started talking about how much I fell in love with Julie Adams, and we were able to like, hey, wait a minute, she was in this, and we have. I sat down to watch an episode of Murder she wrote together, but uh, she's coming up to visit, so maybe I'll, I'll find a Julie Adams episode and we'll sit down and watch it together. Just so I can watch Julie Adams. Yeah, cool. I
4: mean, she was in a lot of Western television. Just oh, of just <laughs> in Maverick twice, and just mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that she was in, and it's it's always a joy to see her. And I'm I am totally glad that you pointed me in this direction because I you know I've got the book, but somehow it didn't didn't register in my little head. I missed it. And uh, I'm glad, even though it's not available on on DVD or Blu-ray, I'm really glad that it is available and you can see it. You know, it was only ten dollars to get it. Is it worth ten dollars? Well, to me, it is.
0: Yeah, me too. Same here, hands down.
4: And you know, and if you're really feeling uppity, you can you can. Uh, Buy or rent this, and then you can watch Destination Inner Space right after it.
0: Hey, there's a double feature. Sign me up.
4: And you get to see kind of you know the difference between two low-budget underwater films made within four years of each other. So that's kind of cool. It's a cool contrast.
0: But Destination Inner Space doesn't have the giant moray eel. Come on.
4: It does not, but it has the coolest underwater monster ever except for the creature from the black woman. It's a human.
0: pretty darn cool underwater monster. You know, we didn't even talk about the boozer, the, the guy who's trying to make— booze. Oh yeah, (laughs)
4: I started to go down the, there are things that these people do that you would never (laughs) allow on an undersea facility, experimental facility whether or not it was military or not, and one of them is that one of their key men is a boozer, and (laughs) even though they have forbidden there to be any booze aside from medicinal booze on the station, this guy goes out to the local shipwreck, and what's in the local shipwreck? Booze.
0: Yeah. And he's drinking it underwater.
4: He's like, take the regulator out of his mouth, take a drink, (laughs) put the regulator back in his mouth. Hey
0: man, what's the thirsty got to do if he wants a little blast? Come on.
4: Right. And then when he comes he (laughs) manages to somehow get back to the facility, and they think he's got Rapture of the Deep, but we're not deep enough for that. What is going on with this guy? Eventually they figure out he's drunk. And they all laugh about it. It's like, oh, oh he's drunk. No wonder he just kissed the dietician. He's making passes at the doctor.
0: <laughs> oh, what a card. Leave it to the cowboy to find some booze.
4: Yeah. He could find booze anywhere when we were in the Korean War. Yeah. So, which yep. dates it. You know, it's funny.
0: True. That's that true. They, yeah.
4: They nail it right into the late 1950s, early 60s time period because the, of the reference to the Korean War there. So it's science fiction futurist, but it's not actually set in the future. It was set firmly in the present of when they were there, which explains the really terrible hairdos True. among other things.
0: The reason I wanted to bring up the boost shot is because I want to bring this all back to... I want to wrap up by going back to Julie Adams. One of my favorite shots in this whole film is when Julie Adams sneaks out to see where he's going. And mm-hmm. she puts her hand on her hips right. and shakes her head like... You know, (laughs) it's it's so, I don't know. I love it.
4: (laughs) Julie Adams is the only one aboard this project that seems to care that this guy has been able to go out and get drunk undersea where there's no booze. And so she follows him out. And when she sees him at the wreck drinking from these sunken booze bottles, as Derek said, she there's this shot, of course it's dry for wet again and when we say dry for wet we mean they shot it on a dry sound stage and then special effects it up to make it look wet, thus the discussion of the helium filled bubbles and stuff she sees him and she literally puts her hands on her hips and shakes her head at what she's seeing And it's just <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of a funny moment but You know, as I said, as a kid that grew up with Jacques Cousteau and uh, actual underwater research, there is nothing that goes on (laughs) in the show that actually resembles actual underwater research or construction, for that matter. You know, it's like, yeah, people get killed in construction projects, big ones. It happens all the time. But at the same time, you never would write that off the way the guys are like, ah, another guy got killed. Oh, well. (laughs) You know, it might help if you sent, rather than sending people out singly into the deep, you made rules about going out in pairs of two or three and never by yourself, which would also solve the, the problem of the guy sneaking off to the wreck by himself to get drunk. So you have to forgive it all, those kind of things. But we do, because it's fairly well shot. It's a nice mm-hmm. looking film, the print is good. Julie Adams is charming, and it 's really as a science fiction fan and a monster kid it 's a really interesting kind of period between when we were doing outer space exploration and they, and they talk about the water here as being inner space, which is another reason the destination inner space will probably pop into the minds of anyone that 's seen it it's They know we 're trying to go into space, and they tried to take that idea and translate it into a different environment, the environment being underwater. It's a really interesting try for that reason.
0: I think that's a good way to put it, Steve. It's a really interesting film. I think Monster Kids will dig it. But it's an interesting science fiction film as well. Steve, we need to go ahead and start wrapping up because I've got another recording scheduled with somebody here in a second. But before we wrap up, SDSullivan.com.
4: SDSullivan.com. CushingHorrors.com. I'm looking for three more Pledges and then I'll actually start cushing horrors. So what a deal!
0: <laughs> there you go, there you go. I'll make sure there's links to this in the show notes. Of course, Steve's website's linked in our website you know, on our website at monsterkidradio.net. And if cushing horrors isn't, we need to make sure that happens. So I'll make sure that's in the links section of our website as well. Steve, we're gonna have you back on the show, of course. I mean, yeah, yeah, always. You know, we always Anytime. have something to talk about.
4: Oh yeah, it's it's been great. I'm really glad. That you suggested we see this film, I'm glad that it was available in a in a good print in a way yes. that was easily accessible to me. Even if I can't pull it off my shelf and stick it in my library, so thank you.
0: Yeah, no problem. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it, and we'll talk to you soon.
4: Yep, talk to you soon.
0: I love having Steve on the show, and realistically, we could have talked for hours about the underwater city, Julie Adams, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Destination Inner Space, or basically any topic. You know are pretty good friends and you know how monster kids are when they get together. They just won't shut up. So you know Steve, we're gonna have to have you back on. Listeners, I hope you dug the conversation that Steve and I had. And yeah, unfortunately this movie is only available for streaming through Amazon, but as Steve and I said repeatedly, the transfer is solid. So go check it out. Definitely worth a rent. I think it's definitely worth A purchase.
2: Rampaging in an unsuspecting world, living creatures from the dawn of time. What havoc will they wreak? What lives will they destroy? What depths of panic and terror will they create? The most amazing, astounding, astonishing adventure of them all, beyond anything your mind can imagine, never before seen on the screen.
4: I am Dr. Lee
3: Cushing. Welcome
4: to my Chamber
3: of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, the Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game.
4: My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline.
1: Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber
4: of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance,
1: plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do
4: hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim.
3: Introducing Dr. William J. Bryan, the first medical doctor in the United States to specialize in the practice of hypnotism. In 1960, I was consulted regarding a tragic case of a triple murderer who strangled his victims immediately after viewing the movie Psycho. His fascinating analysis under hypnosis, now a matter of record in my book, came to the attention of the producers of Dementia 13, who asked me to devise a method of preventing a recurrence of this tragedy. You will be given a test prepared by Dr. Bryant to determine your ability to withstand shock. Those unable to pass this test will not be admitted to the theater. In this old castle, death is the youngest thing alive. For it is born and reborn 13 times, each time from a different dementia. A miasma of madness hides the one who delivers death. One who walks with silent tread and strikes with ruthless force. Is it the mother? Demented by grief? Or the attentive daughter-in-law, whose voice is soothingly hypnotic? She'll tell me. I promise you. Is it the son, who with fire creates beauty? Or the doctor who can cure and kill? Or perhaps the new bride, tortured by the ever-present nearness of death? know the frenzy of a wedding night, in which a marriage is consummated, in a passion of terror. You too will be mesmerized by a world that cannot be, but is. The movements of the static startles the wisest of birds. The mystery of the enigmatic leads to a strange rendezvous, an attempted escape, a meeting with terror.
0: Monster Kid Radio has a page over at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Radio, or just follow the Patreon button over at monsterkidradio.net and you can learn how you can help support the show. Once a month, I'm going to do an executive producer roll call. These are people who help support the show at the Toho level or higher. So without further ado, special thanks to Mitch Gonzalez, George McGowan, Tracy and Scott Morris, Joseph Perry, Jeremy from Shades of Jeremy Designs, Stephen Turner frank schilderner sean hode john kilgallen richard chamberlain and the folks over at dorado films and first line films being included in the monthly executive producer roll call is just one of the rewards you can earn by helping support monster kid radio check out our patreon page to learn more again there's a link in the show notes episode i mentioned the monster kid radio gazette that's our e-newsletter that i put out once a month where was last month? well I'm, I'm sitting on it i'm still working on it i've decided we're going to make the monster kid radio gazette a bi-monthly e-publication so it's not just going to be once a month you're going to get it once every two months that does give me more time to put more content in there and get more content from other people that's right i'm open to submissions for the monster kid radio gazette this is a free monthly e-newsletter oh, excuse me bi-monthly e-newsletter, Force of Habit, where you can learn more about Monster Kid Radio, get some more Monster Kid-flavored goodness. I've got a crossword puzzle I put in there once a month. Other trivia, just fun bits and bobs about monster stuff. That's in the Gazette. Head over to monsterkidradio.net. Over on the right, you put in your email address, and that's it. Twice a month, you're going to get an email from Monster Kid Radio. So you've been saying bi-monthly, but then you just said twice a month. Did I say twice a month? I'm considering leaving this in. You know what? I'm going to leave it in. My wife just corrected me. My wife is sitting here, Brenda, who is awesome. I'm going to get to her in a second, actually. She just pointed out, I said twice a month, it's every other month, because numbers are hard. My brain is filled with so much monster stuff, kind of pushed out some math stuff, so I forgot how to count. Every other month. And I mentioned Brenda because she is making her triumphant return to the potosphere. Brenda used to be my co-host on a previous podcast. I loved podcasting with her, and... Based on the feedback we used to get, listeners love to hear from Brenda. And she is coming back to a podcast. She's not going to be weekly. She's going to be part of the new special monthly podcast called Married with Monsters. The reason this podcast can happen is because we've hit a certain milestone on Patreon, So thanks to your support, we are now putting out this new monthly podcast. Episode 1 will be dropping later this month. We do not have a set time or date for the release, yet I just think it's going to be mid-month, kind of based on when Brenda and I can sit down and record an episode. Because it's me, it's going to be some Monster Talk. Because it's me and Brenda, it's not going to just be Monster talk. So I'm excited to share that with you guys and gals. We've already recorded the first episode where we talk about a movie, a relatively recent movie, I do try to make some comparisons to a classic monster flick. But really, it's just she and I jamming about this modern monster movie. You don't have to do anything different to get this podcast. It's going to be part of the Monster Kid Radio stream, which means it will be available on monsterkidradio.net, iTunes, Stitcher. However else you get your podcasts, you're going to be able to get it just by being a subscriber of Monster Kid Radio. (laughs) If you happen to live in the Portland, Oregon area, heads up, I just found out about this really omsy. The Oregon Museum of Science and Industry is having their annual sci-fi film fest from July 8th through July 15th. Now, sadly, there's not a lot of classic sci-fi action happening here.
2: But, will you tell these fools? I'm not crazy. Make them listen to me before it's too late. Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand and the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike in you!
0: However, on Sunday, July 10th, they're playing Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original, 1956. So this is probably the only fide classic sci-fi film, and it's only playing once during the run. I'm considering going. Stay tuned to Facebook if you're part of the Monster Kid Radio Facebook group. I'll mention there if I am, in fact, going to go. If you're going to go, drop me a line there and maybe we'll meet up.
2: Discover Planet of the Apes, a civilization where humans run wild in the jungles, and the superior beings are apes.
3: Tribunal has placed you in my custody for final disposition. Do you realize what that means? No. Emasculation to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. And a kind of living death. <laughs>
0: Another screening happening later this month that I am super excited about. And you don't have to be in Portland to go because it's happening across the country thanks to Fathom Events. Planet of the Apes is playing on the big screen July 24th. It's also playing later in the week. But July 24th is when I'm going to go. And I recommend you guys and gals, if you have not seen Planet of the Apes on the big screen You are so missing out. That's how I first saw the film at last year's OMSI Sci-Fi Fest. I can't wait to see it again. This time at the local... what? What is the theater over there? Do you know? The the one I'm going to to see, Planet of the Apes. The one by Powell's. Bridgeport? Cinemark? Cinema Mahuzi? Mahugi? Regal? Cinema Regal screen, Mark. It's a movie theater that I'm going to go see it at. You can find out more about this over at fathomevents.com slash event slash planet of the apes. You can get more info and buy your tickets there. Highly recommended. If you're in the area, I'm going to put together a Monster Kid Radio crash. I'd love to meet as many people as I can. There, I'll bring my recorder. We'll chat it up before the movie, after the movie. If you go see the movie in your area, I'd love for you to call into the Monster Kid Radio hotline and let me know how the show went. Speaking of our voicemail line, it's 503-479-5MKR. That's 503-479-5657. You can also send us any feedback to that voicemail or our email address, which is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. This is, of course, all available over at monsterkidradio.net where you're going to find everything else you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. There's links to everything that we mentioned in this episode. There's links to every band, every song that's appeared on this show. You can find a link to it from our website. For example, if you follow the link to the band, the Amphibians, you're going to get to their Facebook page. They're playing July 16th at the Listing Loon in Cincinnati, Ohio at 9 p.m. Check them out. But you heard about him here on Monster Kid Radio. And in fact, next week, we're going to be playing a song from their latest album, Enigma of the Deep. Also next week on Monster Kid Radio, got a new to the show person on the podcast, but not a new voice to podcasting. She used to contribute quite a bit to the B-Movie cast. She's Kelly Hogaboom, and we're going to talk about X, the man with the X-ray eyes.
2: August 14th, notes and experiment designated X experimental subject, myself, James Xavier. X, the most fantastic experiment you have ever taken part in, presents Ray Moland in his most challenging role since his Academy Award-winning Lost Weekend. X, the man with the X-ray eyes. Are you all right? It's like a splitting of the world, more light than I've ever seen. Filled with light. X, the man with the X-ray eyes, tries to help the most desperate in our society and enjoys all the delights of secretly studying sexology. Headache? No, it's just my eyes. A doctor with the power to see what others cannot believe. can overcome the unknown, save lives, and invade the glamour gambling casinos of Las Vegas, and defy the goddess of chance. Don't draw. Don't draw. Next card's a face card. Harry, you better go for the sheriff right now.
0: tell you about the first time I saw this movie in next week's episode Kelly and I are going to chat it up you know we're going to spoil the movie so if you haven't had a chance to see this film yet highly recommend you check it out it's a great film Ray Milan is amazing in it and like I said Kelly and I are going to spoil it pretty much beat by beat we even kind of spoil the very end so be prepared Finally, thank you to everybody who's helped support the show in the past, either through Patreon or by sharing our Facebook posts, retweeting our tweets, giving us a vote or a rating in the iTunes store. Anything that you do to help support Monster Kid Radio, I greatly appreciate. Thank you so much for making us part of your balanced podcast podcast diet or something monster kid radio is a registered service mark of monster kid radio llc all original content of monster kid radio by monster kid radio llc is licensed under a creative commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives 3.0 unported license of course that doesn't apply to the song shark that belongs to the band the amp phibians. this is from their album the surf guitar heard Round the world you can check them out over at facebook at facebook.com slash amp and then with an f or follow the link in the show notes Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.